Let us hear four passages of Scripture about money, about worry, about sharing, and about caring. Let us hear the Word of God. From Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord, your God. And from Leviticus 25. And you shall hallow the 50th year and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. From 1 Timothy and Hebrew. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will God not more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. Stewardship sermons. If you've been counting the weeks, or if you've seen what scriptures were going to be preached on today, or you saw the title of the sermon, or you heard earlier in the service, you might have inferred that that's what this Sunday is. That annual ritual every year in the mainline Protestant church when the Someone stands up in the pulpit and asks you to pledge your dollars for the coming year. It's the annual NPR campaign. It's the annual telethon. It's whatever you want to call it. It's today and you still came. It becomes a little bit of a sport sometimes, I think. I'm, I'm so pleased each year when people talk to me after the service about my stewardship sermon Oftentimes, it's a, boy, you got away with it this year, or that must be really hard for you to do. I suppose it, it's because survey after survey suggests that money is one of the very hardest things that we can talk about in polite company, and if anything, Presbyterians try to be polite. It is more taboo than talking about sex, it seems. I suppose it might also be thought to be hard because I have a pastoral relationship with you as well as an administrative or a leadership role with you. You want me with you or others of the pastors during times of stress in your lives. And we don't want to mix things up now, do we? But to be honest, I actually don't find these sermons really hard to preach. The biggest challenge in these stewardship sermons is actually trying to figure out how to do it differently every year and to keep your attention. So this year, you're going to be a preaching class for me, all right? Put your caps on, you're a first-year seminarian in the introductory class, and this is the lecture on how to preach a stewardship sermon. Ready? Notebooks out. I may call on you at the end of this. Four points. First point, just do it. <laughs> Write it down. Preach it. Don't shirk it. Don't farm it out to somebody else. Don't be shy about it. Just do it. Second point. Read the Bible before you do it. Don't skip that step. And notice a few things as you do. One thing to notice is that among all the things that we can say about the Bible, one of the things that we can say about the Bible is that the Bible is a kind of extended sermon about money. There is a lot in Scripture about how we live with money. 
In the translation of the Bible in your pews, the New Revised Standard Version, the word money alone, just money, appears 177 times. Let alone the additional hundreds of verses and stories and proverbs and lessons about wealth, about poverty, about economics, about enslavement to things, about freedom from want, about stewarding, caring for what we have, and about what God thinks about all of this. It is everywhere in Scripture. I could preach a sermon every single week of the year from a passage about money and all of these things that go with it, you might or might not keep coming, but I could do it every single week for a year and only make a dent. And there's another thing to notice. As much as we try to think of money as something that is neutral, that is separate from us, and that matters only in how we use it, the Bible does not think about money that way. In the Bible, money is alive. It is not inert. It is not neutral. It affects us. It gets into us. It gets into our relationship. It is a living, active force in our lives. It is something to address and be addressed by. Money is a player in Scripture. Money is, as I said, a force. It can make us. It can subtly break us. And God has something to do in it, about it, and through it. And so another thing to remember as you read Scripture, as much as we think that it is no one's business but our own how we handle things around money, the Bible doesn't see it that way either. God cares about how we use money, how we get it, how we use it, what having it or not having it does to us, and how we give it away. And so the church, too, cares about all of this, humbly, but for sure. Money is a big theme in the early church. Faithfulness to God calls out of us a sense of responsibility, of sharing, of justice, of healthy respect for how money both can inspire us to goodness and to mission and subtly mess up our views of ourselves and the world, sometimes without us even noticing. Why are they always talking about money in the church, I hear? Well, first, we aren't always talking about money. But the fact is, we actually might not be talking about money enough. Because it's central to the life of faith.
And so it's worth our time also to look at some of the images that surround money in Scripture. You heard some of them described in the four passages read in your hearing. There are images of judgment and warning that surround money. You heard two of them. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and eagerness for wealth has pulled many away from the faith. So try to keep your lives free of that love. Find freedom in enough. And there are more like those. There are families that are broken in Scripture. Stories of families broken by greed. Ancient Israel is condemned for letting greed overcome compassion among her people. But there are also images in Scripture of vision and commonwealth that surround wealth and money. Images of abundance when all are fed and no one is in need. You heard an image of what's called gleaning from the first passage from Leviticus 19 when the people are called to leave food in the fields so people in need can come by and take the food from the field. You know why that tradition of gleaning was as it was? Why the people of ancient Israel, the farmers, were not told to take their fruits and then distribute them? but to leave them in the field, it was so those in need can retain their dignity by not having to beg. So they can go into the field and participate in the abundant goodness that all the people have shared together when they are in need. Because one day they will also share. And that image of jubilee in that second passage from Leviticus that you heard. The people were called every 50th year to return to their land, to share together, not work, but enjoy the abundance that they have been given. And another part of that jubilee year was that they were also to return and forgive debts. If someone owed them too much, they were to share out and, and resolve the debts so that people could start again to create society over again every 50th year. And there are images of hope and freedom that surround money in Scripture when we let faith affect how we relate to it all. Israel is redeemed as if bought out of slavery by God. It is said that we are bought with a price by Jesus' death and resurrection. We are free when we let our faith, we let our faith overcome the draining worries that we sometimes have about things and about hoarding to protect ourselves and give them all to God and seek God's realm first. And the life of faith in Scripture is imagined as a life of stewarding, of tending what is entrusted to us, of sharing in productive work, of caring for people in need, and trusting God and God's people for the future. This includes giving to the temple. This includes later giving to the church. 
This includes giving to those in need as an essential part of the life of faith. Not to get something back, not to pay for something received, but as an act of faith and of trust and to participate in what God is doing. If we are good stewards of the message and of the mission and of the money that we are given, we have no need to fear. For as God's stewards, we have what we need. And God will be with us through all things, particularly as we help each other. And as God's stewards, we can live generous lives of love and purpose. So the third point to remember when you're writing your stewardship sermon Tell the truth. Stewardship matters in all parts of our lives. Our families, our relationships, our communities, our commitments, our spiritual growth, how we use our bodies, how we use our minds, how we treat strangers, how we treat the earth. And stewardship matters also when it comes to money. Through our lives, in the ways that we impact the world around us, and in the church that lies in between each one of our lives and the world. Good stewardship in the church demands leadership, active participation, and generous giving. And without those three, leadership, participation, and generous giving, there is no mission. You pay my salary and the salaries of all the staff. You open the doors. You burn the lights. You tune the organ. You cool the sanctuary. You fix the roof. You prepare the nursery. You care for the campus, you buy new equipment, you prepare and print Sunday bulletins and newsletters, you maintain the website, you produce the live streams and the videos, you make it possible for us to celebrate through music and the arts, to preach the word, to teach the faith, tend to children and youth, dialogue with perspectives different from your own care for persons who are sick or in distress, bury the dead, baptize the newborn, invite strangers to become friends, learn more each day, support those who, for whatever reason, can't give what they'd like, and prepare the future. You share the wealth with others, locally and globally, in financial support for many ministries, as you heard earlier in this service. Crossing borders, sheltering sisters and brothers without homes, carrying food and water and opportunity and faith with others, sisters and brothers in need of those. Giving opportunities for school to folks who wouldn't otherwise have a chance 
and sometimes being changed for the better yourselves as you do. You do all of these things and more and they don't come cheap. We don't charge for our ministry, but we ask for your life. We don't charge for our ministry, but we encourage stewardship. We don't charge for our ministry, but we ask for your generosity. And we believe you'll grow by giving it. And so the fourth thing to remember as you prepare those stewardship sermons, trust your people. Trust God's people. I think in an age of too much style and too little substance sometimes, with fundraising hype filling your inboxes and your mailboxes every day, with campaign strategies and consultants' methods drowning out faithfulness, the very faithfulness of that one woman that Jesus praises for giving one coin from her heart to the work. It's easy as all that's drowned out to lose trust in each other. But trust we must. Call me an out-of-date pastor when it comes to this, but I want to believe that I don't need to flatter you or beg you or excite you or shout to get your attention. And I don't need to make false promises of some instant reward if you make a pledge or increase your pledge to Pinnacles Ministries in 2022. I want to believe that all I need to do on behalf of the church and his ministries is ask. And so I ask. Many of you have heard me talk of the congregation I served for a time before coming to Pinnacle. It was founded in the 1870s, so it was a little older than Pinnacle. In the late 1920s, trusting that it had a sense of God's vision, its leadership decided it was time to build a new sanctuary. The church was 600 members at the time, and they built a 1,200-seat neo-Gothic structure that is still standing and busy today. That would be like Pinnacle deciding to build a new sanctuary to seat over 2,000 people. During one of the years I was serving there, I got an envelope in the mail from a Mrs. Susan Taylor. Now elderly, Mrs. Taylor had long since moved away. She wrote of having been baptized by Dr. Andrew Much, who was the pastor when the church caught that vision. In the envelope that she sent me, there were several items from the church that she had found in some box. Among those items was a carefully ribbon-wrapped mailer from 1928 the year after the sanctuary had been completed. It had a brief letter to the congregation from Dr. Much on the top. In the packet was also a review of the sanctuary project, freshly completed, 
and an outline for the next project, which was to build an education building for children and youth. The sanctuary had been built for $540,000, which would be about $8.5 million today. And there remained a debt on the sanctuary of about $165,000, which would be about $2.5 million today. And they were planning their children's and youth building to cost another $250,000, which would be about $4 million today. There were brief descriptions of imagined education and outreach and community ministries, worship and the arts. If the church won't do it, who will? The material asked. And there was that letter from the pastor. In small typeface, in a rather formal style. There is great joy and a deep thankfulness in my heart now that a new church has been completed and dedicated. It is so beautiful and in every way a true house of worship, and I feel that the appreciation and satisfaction of the congregation will be shown. Then he names the need, money to pay the debt, more to fulfill the vision, alongside support for the ministries there imagined. He goes on in his brief letter, saying that he has every confidence that the generosity and faithfulness of the people of the congregation will meet the need. That's it. That's the appeal. That's all. Every confidence in the faithfulness of the people. Seems kind of quaint today. But the trust ringing in the words is palpable and faithful and, excuse me, and humbling. It's stewardship at its simplest. Faith in God's provision Love placed where it belongs, in the gospel we preach, and the future it assures us. A simple word worth hearing in our own lives and in the church. We trust the spiritual power of stewardship that's taught in scripture and experienced by the church, of God's love and care, of the freedom God gives us in generous, accountable, faithful living of hearing the word and sharing the work. We trust all of it, and we trust each other. So there's your primer on stewardship sermons. Preach them. Remember what scripture says while you do. Tell the truth, and trust God's people. Any volunteers for next year? <laughs> Amen.